Like most writers do, I you know, started out with various day jobs and I was just kind of writing on the side, but things had progressed enough to the point where I could earn a full living off of my writing income. And so my husband and I thought, you know, we don't need to stay in Seattle. We don't have to be in any one particular location to rely on a job somewhere. And we made a, a list of various towns in Western Washington that we thought we would check out. And the very first one on our list was, was Friday Harbor out here on San Juan Island. So we came out to visit one January and um, as soon as we got here, pretty much, we said, throw away the list. <laughs> We're done. <laughs> We're going to stay. It's a small island. It's about 55 square miles, so it's, it's not large at all. It's a very rural place. There's one town and it's a very tiny town. It's so small that we don't even have any stoplights. There are street lights uh, at night on the main street and on one of the neighborhoods um, where a lot of children live, and that's it. Everywhere else on the island, it is at night, it is pitch black, and it's a quiet community. I mean, everybody here, all the, all the year-rounders who, who don't just have vacation homes here, but who live here year-round, like everyone knows each other. Everybody knows everybody else's business. And uh, it's a very pleasant community. It's, it's kind. People here are very nice to each other. People here are very conscientious and uh, community-minded. We've actually done a really great job with the pandemic with keeping it under control because everyone here is just so determined to look out for each other, which is a really nice, nice change for most of the rest of the country. The feel it has, it has uh, a sensation to it. It has a vibe to it that's almost out of time. Like, you feel like you are living in the past here or in in another reality that's not quite the same as reality on the mainland. We decided to rent before we bought a place just to make sure we really liked it since it is so isolated and so far away from everyone else we know. <laughs> um, so we found a little rental house and, um, and moved in and Right away, we started noticing a lot of things happening there that we weren't used to happening in our homes. But being as skeptical as we are, we found ways to sort of write it off as, as just coincidences or just normal happenings. So one of the things that would happen frequently is we had this old armoire in the bedroom and the door on it would just open and close at, at weird moments. So, you know, we'd be sitting in bed, watching something on our laptops or whatever, and just out of nowhere without anybody walking past it or shifting the floorboards or anything, the door would just swing open on this armoire. And we would be like, oh, that's weird. <laughs> and we'd get up and shut it. And it it was nothing that, obviously, it's not like a dramatic thing, you know, an old armoire door swinging open. I mean, it's a pretty commonplace happening. So we didn't really think much of it, except that it just happened a lot. Like, <laughs> it, was, it was very frequent. It was pretty much always when we were in the room, and it got to the point where we wedged this little sock in the door of the armoire to keep it from, from swinging open. And it still would open sometimes, even with the sock in it. You know, we wrote it off as like, well, the floors must be uneven, even though there were no other signs of the floors being uneven in the house. We were not willing to entertain that it could have been anything other than just a mundane experience. After we stopped acknowledging that the armoire door was doing its own thing, that's when things started to escalate beyond, beyond just that activity.
I'm Jim Perry. This is Euphemia, a show about the unknown and our relationship to it. This time, a skeptical writer is drawn to an island, teaching her more about herself than she could have ever imagined. Next on Euphemia. Libby and her husband could have never imagined what their new island home had in store for them. But islands are like that. We go to them to get away from it all only to realize we have become captive as they hold us, offering no real escape, forced to face yourself in a new reality far away from the buzz and static of the consensus. San Juan Island in Washington State is beautiful, remote, and unless you have been here, it's quite hard to describe its feel. As I arrive, it's as if the passenger ferry is pulled towards its curvy mass, its foggy allure as if a siren. It feels primitive and mysterious. Open pastures dot its landscape surrounded by dark forests of tall Douglas fir, as if on guard, forests that stay dark year-round. Which sounds foreboding, I think, to other people, but, you know, I'm a Northwesterner and I just find it so beautiful. It's just the most beautiful, peaceful, isolated place. And since it is such a small island, pretty much anywhere, if you can get a view of the water from wherever you're standing, what you see is the water, obviously, and then more of these islands. It's just these these black arches of, you know, forested, rounded, you know, they look like like the coils of sea serpents just rising from the water everywhere you look. It's like being in a totally, it's like being in a different world. It's, you know, the, the roundness of everything you see is almost a little eerie and a little strange. Uh, it's a little, it's just different from, from the way anything looks on the mainland. So the, the way the bedroom was set up, the only place we could put the bed was up against this window that looked out onto the backyard. It was just like the bed pushed up against the wall and the window right above the bed where a headboard normally would be. We began to notice this handprint on the window right above the bed. It was a large handprint, like an adult size handprint wash the windows inside and out, and, um, you know, the next day, it would be back. We never really talked about it much. Like, eventually, we washed the window so many times, and immediately the handprint would reappear in exactly the same place, at exactly the same angle. I mean, it was always the same handprint over and over again. This was never anything we discussed. We, we just kind of had this silent agreement to never talk about the handprint. <laughs> it just kept coming. We kept washing it away, and eventually we stopped trying to make the handprint leave our lives. It was just a permanent fixture of the bedroom. It did feel like something was trying to get our attention. You know, something was trying to make us notice that it was there. And maybe something was kind of insisting, I am here, you know, it was... <laughs> 
we were so so um so willing to write off the armoire door opening in front of us all the time as oh it's just you know houses that's the floors are crazy that's something totally mundane it almost feels like the handprint was kind of an escalation uh, like a more insistent energy just asserting itself and saying I, i'm real you know i'm really here i'm not a figment of your imagination you start going okay this, this is not this is not uh anything I've experienced in reality before and, and it's awfully hard to explain this with purely skeptical, rational <laughs> rational means but I would say about three or four months after we had moved into the rental house and probably about two months after we had just accepted the handprint as a fact of life that wasn't going away, we had been you know, up at night sitting around the dining room table, each of us working on our two respective laptops. And, um, you know, bedtime rolled around, we fed the cats, we locked the doors, we got into bed. When we got up the next morning, the table was empty and both of our laptops were gone. Of course, at first we thought, oh gosh, well, we must have put them somewhere weird and we didn't realize it, so we looked for them and they didn't turn up, and then we tore the house apart looking for them, and they were nowhere. I mean, we could not find these laptops anywhere. And, you know, I work from home, like, that's how I make my living is on my laptop, so I was like, oh my god, what happened? We thought, well, you know, this dining room table is right next to this slider door, and maybe somebody was prowling around our house, looked through the slider, and somehow got in and stole the laptops? And we went and checked and the slider was still locked, but, you know, always looking for those skeptical excuses for, for weird things, we thought, well, maybe somebody jimmied it open and when they closed it again, it, it popped the lock back into place. I don't know. So we couldn't think of anything to do except to file a police report. So the sheriff came out and he looked around and said he found no evidence at all, at all of any kind of forced entry, but the laptops were undeniably gone, and so he took the report and was like, okay, whatever, crazy people, and he left. Gosh, I don't remember how long after that it was. Maybe a couple of days, you know, we had like ordered new laptops and stuff. We were just ready to move on with our lives. I went into one of the spare bedrooms and I was looking for some bedding and I cut open a, a box that was still taped shut from our move and pulled all the bedding out, and on the bottom of the box, underneath pillows and blankets, were our two laptops. Inside a sealed box. And we had just used those damn laptops, like, two days before. Uh, it was... chilling. <laughs> I, I was terrified for a minute. I didn't understand how this could possibly have happened. I took them out and I walked up to Paul with them in my hands and he said, where did you find those? And I said, inside that box that was taped up in the spare room. And we just stared at each other for the longest time. And then he said, let's just not talk about this ever again. <laughs> and we didn't. <laughs> What else are you gonna do? <laughs> I don't, I still to this day have no explanation for how that could have happened, but if that didn't destroy my, my absolute skepticism, um, I don't know what else could have possibly done it. I mean, how do you explain that? <laughs> you can't. <laughs> Despite it being revealed as a very strange place, Libby and her husband fall for this weird new world they decide to stick around and look for a property to buy. 
and once we found a place and put an offer in it, you know, we, we were kind of friendly with our next door neighbors there and, and we mentioned to them, oh yeah, it's been so great living near you guys, but we're actually going to be moving soon because we're buying a house. And she said, oh, you know, the house itself, it's kind of weird. And I was like, yeah, it's a little weird. It's slightly weird. And I was kind of surprised that she knew anything about the weirdness of the house. And she said, well, did you hear about uh, what happened in this house before you moved in? Did the owner tell you? And I said, no, what, what happened? And she said, um, the, the lady who owned it, uh, her husband passed away in the bedroom, in the, the master bedroom. <laughs> so that was where the handprint was appearing and where the uh, armoire door was opening all the time. And uh, who knows, maybe he also lifted our laptops and repacked them for us in a, in a box. But I was like, at that point, you're not going to be scared by somebody saying, like, maybe there's a spirit haunting that house you lived in. Because, like, I've already been living there for months, you know, I'm, I'm used to it at that point. So I was like, oh, OK, well, that explains a thing or two. <laughs> <laughs> Philosophers, poets, and writers like to talk about that moment when staring into the abyss, when it turns to stare back at you. I live outside of town by a few miles, but my friend who lives in that little tiny town I mentioned earlier, she was on vacation for the holidays and she asked me to take care of her cat while she was gone. So I said, you know, sure, no problem. I would drive into town a couple times a day, feed her cat, play with it for a while, clean out the litter box, and then go home. So um, it was on one of my evening rounds of, of cat care. It was night. I remember it was really windy that night. And of course, since there aren't, there aren't street lights in, in the town, um, once you, once you get out from that main street and that single neighborhood that's, that's lit at night, it is just pitch black everywhere. And if, if, it's, a, if it's a cloudy night, if it's kind of stormy like it was that night, um, you don't have moonlight or starlight. I mean, it is just black as the bottom of the barrel. So I came out of her house and um, I went down into the driveway, got into my car, backed out of her driveway, just like I did every night that I took care of her cat. And um, I drove to the end of the street she lived on, which ended at a little stop sign. And then as you sat at the stop sign, across that road, there was a short little cul-de-sac with a few other houses on it. So the headlights of my car were shining down into this cul-de-sac from the stop sign. What I saw at the end of the cul-de-sac, where it rounded out, was this, this large, broad-shouldered humanoid figure crouched down and I just I just remember grabbing hold of my steering wheel and looking at this dog-headed thing that was crouching down against the ground and staring back at me and I remember saying out loud is that a werewolf I think that's a fucking werewolf you imagine kind of crouching on your heels with your knees sort of up and it had its hands down between its feet its body was completely black it had a very like a narrow skull a narrow long muzzle and two big pointy ears that stood straight up so it kind of if you can imagine the egyptian god anubis with the jackal head that's what it was it had two bright green luminous eyes that were staring back at me if you think of um, the the tapita lucidum in most animals' eyes that reflects light at night, that was the same kind of reflection I was getting. That, that was where the light was coming from. It was like a retinal reflection from, from a dog. 
it was it was moving a little bit it, and I I kind of that was what caught my eye I think was the motion of it and I stared at this thing and I realized it was its body was heaving as if it was drawing really heavy breaths I just like cranked the wheel and drove off as fast as I could because I didn't know what else to do and like I was so shocked I didn't even grab my phone to try to take a video or a picture of it I just I didn't even think of that in the moment. All I could do was stare at this thing and just think, what the hell is that? I've never seen anything like it before. <laughs> so, yeah. So I drove off as fast as I could. And at first, of course, like as I was going through town, I was just like, I was shaking, I was freaking out. I kept looking in my rearview mirror thinking this thing was gonna come chasing after me, right? And then I got about halfway to town and um, my thoughts slowed down a little bit and I started to kind of think about its posture and its like, its hard breath. Before I was riding full time, I was working as a zookeeper and I realized, I guess from, from my experience with working with so many other kinds of animals in the past, that um, its body language was saying that it was scared, it was terrified. And all I could think was, it had to have been terrified of me. And then I sort of realized what it must have looked like to that creature. This, you know, metallic vehicle suddenly emerging into its reality with lights emanating from it. And I thought, oh my god, I was a UFO. My Hyundai was a UFO. Like, <laughs> I scared this poor, this poor being, this entity, whatever it was, like somehow I popped into its reality or it popped into mine or whatever. And, and I was, I was the scary thing, you know, <laughs> I was the terrifying object that shattered its, its reality. And then I was just, I was laughing. By the time I got back home, I was like, what the hell, man? Some, some beast out there in some dimension thinks that my Hyundai is a UFO. It was really like, I, it, I'm laughing about it now, but it really shook me. It shook me to my core because according to everything I had come to believe about nature, reality, about life, um, that should not have been possible. It, it was not possible, and yet it still happened anyway. And I just, I went all in. I, I said, okay, the world is weird and I am weird with it. So, <laughs> so I threw myself into it. Um, I started exploring uh, my ancestral uh, beliefs more, you know, tracing back to my native ancestors in the UK and in Denmark. I started learning more about those original native beliefs and I started practicing paganism and witchcraft. I discovered that I could actually trace my ancestry all the way back to some pre-Christian Celtic and Norse tribes. So, you know, most people can't go that far with their genealogy, so I'm extremely fortunate that, that it just, you know, chance worked out that way, that I'm able to accurately trace my lineage back that far. So I was able to know, you know, the names of, of my, some of my ancestors who, who lived before Christian colonization swept through their, their world and altered the way they uh, saw the world and interacted with the world and the way they experienced spirituality and, and their place in, in nature. But somewhere along the way, I, I found this book that, that was going over uh, you know, certain beliefs about, about uh, different types of biomes that were held by Proto-Germanic tribes. And one of those beliefs was that islands are liminal spaces. 
so they're they're not exactly land and they're not exactly the sea. They're a little of both and they're kind of neither at the same time, right? And the fact that they are liminal in, in a physical sense, the fact that they're kind of worlds between worlds or places between places means that these people believed that there was a thinness to the, to the veils that separate these layers of reality. Beings from the other world, from, from fairy, could cross over more easily into, uh, into humans' version of reality uh, if they were on an island. That's why there's so many references to islands in like Arthurian legend and stuff like that. And so it's kind of, you know, I suppose if, if you if you play store in that, which maybe I do after living here for so long and experiencing so many weird things, if you play store in that idea of, of liminal spaces allowing more activity to cross these borders of reality, um, maybe that explains why so much weird stuff seems to happen here. I mean, maybe it's true. Maybe islands are like little portals where... Uh, where weirdness can just seep through easier than in other places. I don't know. Uh, I don't think I would be at the point where I am um, spiritually uh, or, to be honest, in my career if I hadn't come here and if I hadn't felt the sense of invitation here and if I hadn't just accepted that for what it was. Um, I think if I had told myself, oh, there's really nothing weird going on here. It's all in my imagination. I think my life would be very different from what it is now. And I like what my life is now a lot. So I'm glad that I threw my arms open and embraced it. And I'm glad the place embraced me back. Um, so, I mean, I would still be myself and I would still be living a life if I hadn't come here or if I had come here and just thought of it as any other place. Um, but I think my life would look very different from what it looks like now. Uh, we love it here and, and it seems to love us, you know, like I, like I said before, it seems to want us here uh, and, and we, we absolutely adore it. These islands are just special and it's made me more willing to accept that, that strange is just a, an ordinary part of life. Thank you for listening to this edition of Euphemet. And for even more, check out Night Drift, our podcast discussing Euphemet and hosting panels on topics at the intersection of society and strange. Night Drift can be found wherever you listen to podcasts. For everything Euphemet, including how you can subscribe to the show, links to our Patreon and social media, visit euphemet.com. Original score by Colin Frangicetto. This has been Euphemet. I'm Jim Perry. And until next time, keep looking up.